the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Not only did I know the victim of this horrible crime, but I also knew the suspect. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And you know what, Billy? I believe in the beginning of our podcast, every episode, I would talk about something wacky that you were wearing. And today, I would like to make note of your mock neck, turtleneck, eyeglass, scruffy combo. You look like an author. You look like you're going to play a the bongos at a at a coffee house and read a poem. <laughs> look, you look like a beatnik. And I'm gonna, and I'm, snaps, and I'm gonna snaps. And I'm and I'm gonna smoke some clove cigarettes. Yeah. Listen, first you of all, this is like not a, a mock turtleneck. This is yes. My beret is in the wash. But, uh, <laughs> it, it was just incredibly cold. It was uh, cold like today. today. Yeah. It it was actually and normally it, was like, it doesn't affect me, but I was just like, hey, this is clean. I'm I'm doing it. Yeah, it was maybe under seventy degrees in California. That's when we get very shivery. Yeah, that, that, yeah exactly. Well, that is a mock neck turtleneck, Billy. By the, it's, no, it's a, not. It's got. It's not mock because it goes up like this. Oh, it's a yeah. full. Okay, it's a full turtleneck. I mean, every, yeah. <laughs> for everybody listening, Billy's a turtle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, I, did I just know more about fashion than Jack? No, it's just perspective because we're on Zoom, Billy. To me, it looks like a mock neck. Anyways, our listeners can't see us, so this argument is whatever. Moot. So moot, moot, moot. Billy, what day is it today? Well, I will say that today is December 9th, and it is International Anti-Corruption Day. I'm all here for that one. Yes. It's also National Llama Day. Oh. Nothing like a good llama. You know, when... In the beginning of the pandemic, when I thought I was going to take up cookie decorating, <laughs> the first uh, like sugar cookie decorating, I thought that was going to be my thing. Uh, the first cookie mold that I bought was a llama, and Aww. I never used it once. Oh, of course they do. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That big, thick, long neck, yeah, and the little neck. short uh-huh. body. Yeah. yeah. Oh, do they have humps? No, that's camel. Never mind. Onward. All right. It's also Weary Willie Day, who apparently was a sad hobo clown that was played by Emmett Kelly. It's terrifying. On next. No, thank you. <laughs> oh, you want more? No, no not I if there's not good ones. I believe, uh, I'm not looking at my phone, but I looked at them before. I believe it is National Pastry Day. It is. Billy, he always forgets Honestly, the Jack, best you can do the day from now on. Why is it? No, no. No, yeah, I do the not. intro. Billy, this no, no, Billy ja- has one no. job. Jack will do the basic things like, oh, it's National Pastry Day. And then you guys will talk about all like, oh, my God, I love a croissant from this place or that place. No, I keep it real with Weary Willy Day. But nobody Thank knows what that is. No one knows what that is. It's about sadness, okay? That makes I sense don't need for to, you. I don't need to be any sadder than I am already. But thank you. Okay. Okay, well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you.
coincidence is dictionary defined as a striking occurrence of two or more events at one time, apparently by mere chance. Rex Stout said, in a world that operates largely at random, coincidences are to be expected, but any one of them must always be mistrusted. And then a quote from V for Vendetta reads, there are no coincidences, only the illusion of coincidence. Now look inward. What would you think if presented with one seemingly impossible, implausible coincidence? How about two? Or three? Occam's razor would tell us to dismiss them, that coincidences are the exception, not the rule. But today's case defies everything we've ever been taught about reason and chance. And the final statement of our tagline has never rang more true. As you're listening to this, just remember, this could be you. Today's case takes us back to Saturday, January 7th of 2006. Songs Don't Forget About Us by Mariah Carey, Check On It by Beyonce, and Gold Digger by Kanye West were topping the charts. And movies Cheaper by the Dozen 2, Casanova, and Fun with Dick and Jane were in the theaters. And today's case takes place in Tracy City, which is in Grundy County, Tennessee, the southeastern part of the state. It's got plenty of trees and hills nestled in a valley area. Tracy City itself is a very small town. It takes up only about five square miles. There are around 1,400 people occupying mostly single-story homes. Our first degree, whose name is Karen, was born and raised in Grundy County and called this unique place home. When you ask people from uh, that way, they don't say Tracy City. They say Grundy County. That's just sort of the way it is there. It's part of Appalachia. This is a region where coal mining is the primary industry that employs residents. And apparently it all started in 1840 when some local boys were trying to dig a groundhog out of the dirt, which is rude, might I say. And they discovered coal in this process. So this was the catalyst to the coal mining explosion in this region. Very economically depressed, so that if you're not a coal miner, you kind of got to figure out a way to live. And coal mining is not the ideal way to make a living either because it's, it's black lung and walking around with coal dust oozing out of your pores all the time. To supplement income, sort of like back in the once. Prohibition was gone. People in the 60s and 70s were making moonshine. In the 80s, the thing to do up there was this gigantic car theft ring. In the 90s, it was meth. Now, it's the sale of prescription pills. I hate to say that about my birthplace, but that's just the way it is. To sum up what Karen is saying, beyond coal mining, there were few other job opportunities or prospects for residents as a means for primary or supplementary income. So many people, even those considered to be upstanding, essentially had side hustles as a means to supplement their income. And they weren't always legal. This was a pretty commonplace thing and will come into play later in our story. 
It was January of 2006 when Karen, who was working as a TV journalist at the time, received some shocking news. It started with a call for police to come to a home in Tracy City to investigate a brutal assault. The person who called the police was 34-year-old Kirk Braden, and the victim was his mom, Becky Hill. Officers arrived to the scene and approached the home, which was located off a desolate road. The owner of the home told the police that the victim was actually next door. Kirk had called from the neighbor's house because they didn't have a phone. It was January in the southeast. The ground was covered with leaves and scattered brush. Everything was damp, cold, and dark. Inside, they found Becky severely injured. She had been beaten within an inch of her life. Two hours after the officers arrived to help Becky, a Grundy County Sheriff's Office sergeant named Mike Brown discovered a body along a dark rural stretch of Melissa Rock Road. The victim was Becky's brother, 60-year-old Malcolm Burroughs, and it appeared that Malcolm had been struck as many as a dozen times, maybe more, with enough force to split his skull nearly in half. Malcolm's car was there, and there was blood spattered all over the road and all over the car. The police began investigating, and news of what had happened to Malcolm started to spread. Eventually, the news reached Karen, and she was floored, because she had known Malcolm since she was a little girl. In 2006, I was working for a local cable television station there. So I probably came by the news before anyone else did. And I I was shocked. I couldn't imagine, you know, who would want to hurt Malcolm. Very sad that this kind of thing had happened. Karen's father and Malcolm had been friends for as long as she could remember. He was just one of the people that came in and out of the household, one of many who was involved in that with my dad and my uncles. He attempted at one point even a political career when I got older. And well, he didn't just attempt it. He sat on the uh, the city council in Tracy City for a term or two. And he even ran for mayor unsuccessfully. He was a super nice guy. Everybody seemed to like him. I was acquainted with his whole family. Here's what else we know about Malcolm. He was a well-liked guy who dabbled in politics. He worked as one of the city councilmen, and he'd even tried to run for mayor once. He didn't get elected. Malcolm was one of these guys we described in the beginning of our episode. He was a well-liked family man who also did some sort of illicit dealings on the side. In Malcolm's case, he sold pills. And while this was largely rumored... He did have one 2003 felony conviction for selling pills illegally. But remember, in this region, everyone kind of had a side thing going on. So this wasn't much of a stain on Malcolm as a person. He was really well-liked by those who knew him. So as far as this story we're telling, we're at an extreme advantage in Karen helping us tell it. Because she was working as a reporter at the time, and she also knew the victim and his family. As far as where the police were at this point, Becky had been severely injured during the assault, but she survived, and she slowly was able to recall what had happened that night. And this was a relief for law enforcement, because Becky must have seen her attacker. So she and her son Kirk held the key to identifying the perpetrator. 
Becky's son could fill in the police in on the parts of the incident that he had witnessed, and Becky's account is really the one that could help reveal who was responsible and how this happened. And when Becky woke up, she told them. It was the evening of January 7th. The way this whole thing played out was that someone had knocked on the door of the home of Malcolm and his sister, Becky, and Becky's son, Kirk. This was about 9 o'clock in the evening. Now, where they lived is a, this is a very rural area overall, but where they lived was remote, up in a place known as Melissa Rock. And you don't just happen upon this neighborhood or this place. So to have someone knock on their door must have felt unusual to them. I think Becky had answered the door. And the young man at the door had asked for Malcolm and indicated that he was having troubles with his car, that his car had run out of gas, and he needed Malcolm's help. So Malcolm comes to the door, and he indicated that, yeah, he'd be happy to help him. So Malcolm agrees and leaves with this man, who he appeared to be acquainted with. Malcolm offered this guy a ride in his Chrysler back to the broken-down car, so the two got into Malcolm's car and drove off. A young man comes back a little bit of time later and knocks on the door again, and, and Becky goes to the door, and, and he indicates to her that Malcolm had sent him back and had asked that she get starter fluid or something like that, and that Malcolm had said it was under the kitchen sink. So when Becky goes to uh, retrieve whatever it is from from under the kitchen sink, he attacked her and was beating her over the head. Becky was struck in the head with a baseball bat over and over again. And as the beating took place, Becky started screaming for her son, Kirk, who happened to be living there as well, and the assailant had no idea about this. So her screams woke him up, and he ran to the kitchen to see what was going on. As he approached, the man hurled a fire extinguisher at Kirk. But the arrival of Becky's son was enough to cause the man to retreat. He ran outside and escaped the scene in a gold car. There was no phone in this home, so Kirk ran next door to the neighbor's house and called 911 at 9.52 p.m. And of course, as we know, as the police began investigating the assaults on Becky is when they discovered Malcolm's body down the road. I believe sometimes still before they realize that Malcolm is several feet away from her car once they get down to it, and he's been beaten to death. His head has been just bashed in, and he's laying, uh, I think, several feet, 10, 12, 15 feet away from the open door. He's been beaten to death. Apparently, they processed the car. There was a bat, a baseball bat, then found. Apparently, they tried to develop fingerprints initially, and I don't think they were able to develop any fingerprints from the baseball bat. I don't think those surfaces are very conducive to to latent prints. But anyway, 
he didn't really have a lot of success with any physical evidence. Both Becky and Kirk described the man who had attacked them. He looked young, in his 20s. He had red hair, medium height, freckles, and a slight build. He drove a gold car and had a white baseball cap on. As we mentioned, this area is very small. Everyone knows everyone. Surely, with an appearance so specific, the police should be able to zero in on a suspect quickly. As the investigation unfolded, the police kept note of the very specific appearance of the assailant. And Officer Brown, the same officer who had discovered Malcolm's body, began by asking around town to see if these characteristics stuck out to anyone. He spoke to a local confidential informant who told him that there was someone he knew that matched this description exactly. And this guy lived nearby. And remember, like Billy said, this town is super small, so it didn't take long to ID this redhead as 24-year-old Adam Brasile. His name was Adam Brasile. Very salt of the earth, very good people, a very good family, well-respected. And I was just shocked. Of all of the people that would be accused of such a thing, he was... He had, as far as I knew, never been in trouble. Just would never have occurred to me to think of a person like Adam being involved in such a thing. It just wasn't, it was unthinkable. The cops found Adam at a friend's house. And Adam, when approached, claimed to know nothing about Malcolm's murder or Becky's attack. And he agreed to let them search his car, which coincidentally was gold just like the car Becky and Kirk had described seeing leaving the scene after Becky's attack. The car was Adam's mother's. It was a gold 1995 Acura. Adam also agreed to turn over the clothes he was wearing the night prior. And once police were inside the vehicle, to their surprise, they also found a white baseball cap and a jacket. Another coincidence. The officers tried to start the vehicle, and it wouldn't start at first. So this car had engine trouble, which also was right in line with the person they may be looking for, someone who was having car trouble who enlisted Malcolm's help. Another coincidence. When the officers asked where he was in the night of the murder, Adam told them that he left work on Friday, January 5th. He borrowed his mom's car, which remember was a gold car, for the evening, and then spent the night with his friend. He left around 9.15 and drove to another friend's house and got there around 10 p.m., which was eight minutes after the 911 call was made by Kirk. Adam said that at the time that the attacks were unfolding, he was with a friend having a chat in a church parking lot. After that, he was on his way to the other friend's house. At this point, they snap a picture of Adam with the intention of using it in a lineup for Becky and Kirk. And Becky and Kirk were shown this lineup, which was a photo array of eight different men. Becky identified Adam Brasile as the person who had knocked on her door, attacked her, and killed her brother. Kirk also picked him out of the lineup as well. But here's the thing. 
Grundy County authorities didn't record the lineup process on audio or video, and this is pretty unusual. And it's also around this point that Becky's story sort of began to shift. In her first account, Becky said that she had never seen the man who attacked her before. But a week later, her story was that the killer had come by the house earlier in the day because he had ran out of gas and needed money. Then he came back later that night, which is when the attack occurred. So now you have a confidential informant naming Adam. You have him fitting physical description. You have his car fitting the description. And you have both of the eyewitnesses choosing him out of photo lineup. It looks bad for him. It's no surprise that Adam was arrested at this point. I was shocked that Malcolm had been killed. Imagine my shock to realize that not only did I know the victim of this horrible crime, but I also knew the suspect. And he was the little brother of a girl that I not only went to high school with, but we were cheerleaders together in high school. So here's the broad strokes of the evidence stacked against Adam. Becky and Kirk picked Adam out of the lineup, and he had an identical physical description to what Becky and Kirk described, even prior to the lineup process. Adam drove a gold car, and he even had a white baseball cap in his car, just like Becky and Kirk described. But here's the thing. There was no physical evidence at the scene tying Adam to the crime. As the trial approached, Adam remained confident that he would be found not guilty. And this whole thing would be cleared up. Adam was then on bond as he waited for his day in court. He had all confidence that, you know, this is a huge mistake. I was nowhere near Melissa Rock when this happened. I had nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with this crime. So he had every confidence that he was, you know, that the truth was going to come out. By the time that the trial began, Karen was working as a TV reporter. She covered the trial and she found herself in the strange position of knowing the families on both sides of the case, as well as both sides of the courtroom. I just didn't know how to feel about it because there they are. There is this girl that I've also known for decades. Here she is, and she's bawling her eyes out almost every day that they're in court. And they are adamant, as is Adam. And Adam, from day one, maintained he had nothing to do with Malcolm's murder or the attack on Becky. He's still amazed that this has even gone to court. And yet, here is the prosecutor. And they're laying out a very compelling case against him. They have the eyewitnesses. They have the police officers coming in there one by one and detailing what they found at the crime scene. And it's just looking worse and worse for Adam. The prosecution laid out a compelling case. They had the eyewitness evidence. They had the circumstantial evidence in the car. 
they had the physical description of Adam and the baseball hat in the car. And as for motive, they believe the reason Adam committed the vicious assault was for the purpose of robbery because Malcolm's wallet was missing. And Becky had told the police that $800 would have been in his wallet at the time of the murder. And the speculation was that Adam believed that Malcolm would either have some pills on him or would likely have a fair amount of cash due to his side hustle of selling these pills to people around the town. Now, that being said, the police didn't find the wallet in Adam's possession in his car or at his home. The jury was shown horrific crime scene photos depicting Malcolm's injuries. I have on on the one side sitting over on on the left on the side of the the state here are all of Malcolm's family. They're grieving and they're pissed. Somebody murdered their brother their uncle, their, you know, their family member. And it was brutal. It's very surreal to look at crime scene photos of a person you know. You think that you've become somewhat desensitized to, you know, blood and gore. And I'm a, I am a true crime buff. I watch documentaries. I read. am fascinated by all things crime. But when you're looking at crime scene photos of a person that you've known almost literally your entire life, lying in leaves that are painted with his blood and his skull bashed in, it made me cold all over. So look at that. The defense attempted to create reasonable doubt by pointing to the fact that Becky Hill's account of what had occurred seemed to change in the weeks following the murder. It was then revealed that the lineup conducted by the Grundy County Sheriff's Department was done completely improperly. When Kirk Braden was shown the mugshots on a desk as Grundy County Sheriff Brent Myers was cutting them out, Adams was the very first one that Kirk saw. And immediately he pointed to Adam as the perpetrator. And testifying experts said that this is one of the worst possible ways to conduct a photo lineup, and it had the potential to taint the victim's memories. The defense also called Adam's friend to the stand, the one that Adam said he was talking to in the church parking lot at the time of the murder. But the prosecution successfully poked holes in her credibility by tripping her up about the date in which the murder occurred, because apparently it was actually her father's birthday. So what they did was they said, is there anything about this day that stood out to you? She's like, no, not really. And the defense and the prosecutor was like, it was your father's birthday. How could you not remember that day? And like totally just discredited her, which is is fascinating. But right. you're not necessarily making those connections on the stand at the moment. They're like, she's thinking you're asking about the murder. You know what I mean? So anyways, whether she was telling the truth or not, the jury didn't believe her at that point. There were also other witnesses called. But the prosecution, again, they were ruthless during cross-examination and successfully discredited all of them. The other one who claimed to have seen him was another best friend of his. And the prosecution, oh, I guess, no. said literally, you do anything for your best friend, right? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, okay, 
God. <laughs> yeah, you know, and apparently the defense didn't do him any favors. Yeah. Regardless of whether the defense witnesses were believable, there was one undeniable problem with the state's case. There was no physical evidence connecting Adam to the crime. None. No fingerprints. No DNA. No blood. No hair. No clothing fibers. There was no blood found on that fire extinguisher. On the baseball cap. On the jacket. Karen was sitting in the courtroom, and this was eating at her. I gotta be honest. The only thing that was really bothering me, and it was a big thing, there was no forensic evidence. The person or persons who beat Malcolm had to have blood all over them. When I said the leaves were painted with his blood, I'm, I'm not trying to, to be poetic by any means. There was blood everywhere. There was no blood in Adam's car or his mom's car. None. Not a microscopic dot speck of blood in that car. The witnesses described the suspect as wearing a white baseball cap. Well, that was something else that they had. When they took Adam's car to process it for evidence, there was a white baseball cap in it. And I was like, Lord, really? There was nothing on that cap. And, and so everything keeps piling up. So I was like, could he possibly be capable of this? But the prosecution had an answer for this as well. They made a point of saying that the car had been recently cleaned. Luminol will pick up an attempt to clean up blood. It just will. There's still going to be a trace of it. Nothing. No blood. Not even animal blood. There was no blood in that car. None. The prosecution made a big deal of that, too. They were like, we know that in this day and age... Everybody wants to see that CSI moment when we find the blood, when we find a fingerprint, when we find that DNA somewhere. But in many aspects, the circumstantial case is even better because we have to work even harder to put the puzzle pieces together. So it was compelling. The defense made a final plea for the jury to find him innocent. They claimed that the timing of Adam driving and being in the church parking lot is too short to have also killed Malcolm and attack Becky. But prosecutors disagreed and believed the timing worked. No one knew what was going to happen when the jury went to deliberate. But only three hours later, there was word that a verdict had been reached. They found Adam Brasil guilty of murder. He was sentenced to 51 years in prison which meant he wouldn't be eligible for parole until 2063, making him 80 years old when he'd be released. I went cold when they came back with a guilty verdict. I just thought, how can this be? How could a kid, and he was, what, 23, somewhere, 
around that. How could they think he did it? And how could he have done it and not leave any trace of himself? Through it all, Adam maintained his innocence. And his family remained in his corner. He never imagined in his wildest dreams that an innocent person could be convicted of murder. Adam Brasil was sent to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, where he began to serve his sentence. And normally, this is where our story would taper off and end. But like so many aspects of this story, we have yet another exception. Because in the decade following his trip to prison is really where the story erupts into a display of the most mind-blowing constellation of coincidences we've ever observed in a case on the first degree. All of this and more in part two next week. Until then, we wanted to give a huge thank you to Karen for being our first degree guest this week. She will be with us again next week. If you are listening and you have a story you would like to tell us, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. The beginning felt good. Happy pastry day. Nailed it. Cinnamon rolls. Cinnamon rolls. Happy flaky, crunchy, delicious, buttery pastry day. Happy scary clown day. Beep, beep. Shout out to Jared Monaco for his sound design and creating original music for The First Degree. Our producing team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode include Knox News, Grundy County Herald, Fox 17, WSMV.com, USA Today, court documents, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. Welcome to yet another episode of Killing Time. Now, I don't know what the hell ever happens when we try to set up for a fucking episode. It never works. This no, was not one the of, first time. Not the first time. This is another one of those days that took us 15 minutes to set up, but we're here. I hope. It didn't happen. Crossing my fingers. It doesn't shit out. Mm, it never does. Once we get... Th- Hit the sweet spot and <laughs> it's to just- pretty reliable. <laughs> it's only when we are attempting to get the engine going do we face issues. And we use this thing called Zencaster and it's great, except for we never really know how to do it and we never really do anything different. But sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does. And we just cross our fingers once it starts working.
And the only other real issue with it is I think you've probably noticed that we've cut the banter way down and it's because we can't talk over each other or it like distorts. So that's why me and Jack struggle to in unison hit <laughs> the, but not that close. If you're under, you're, they're probably like, why are they so stupid? They can't yeah. get this together. It's because it compresses if we talk at the same time and one of us will be cut out. Wait, so do you try to say if, uh, but not that close different than me? No, I, I try to say it at the same time, but I think there's a lag in that audio. Yeah. So there's a whole to do with that. It's why we can't get that right. We're not, um, incompetent no but there is no excuse for billy forgetting to say uh only you can prevent serial killers because he does just somehow forget to do it almost every single episode (laughs) he's got a lot on his mind yeah i got a lot on my plate so are you okay billy so easy (laughs) Easy. are you okay are you okay billy yeah i'm good would you like to have a little bit of a therapy session or are you okay yeah, let's do that right now. That'd be that'd be fucking wonderful. <laughs> Billy, what is bothering you the most right at this moment? Oh yeah, let's open that. <laughs> what let's are, open that up. What do you? Th- what keeps you up at night? Oh, you really want to go there? <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I could probably guess. Okay, so I last episode we were talking about Christmas gifts, right? And I think I missed two very important questions. So I want to jump on those before we get into this week's killing time. Okay. I'm here for it. Okay. So, and let me know if I'm wrong, if we actually have talked about both of these things, but I don't think that we did. The first question is, what is the perfect white elephant gift? Mm. Fruitcake. Fruit. Fruit Fruitcake. Or like a... Because that would be one... The one that nobody wants? Well, here's a question. Is it the one that nobody wants or the one that everyone wants? I think it's the one that everyone wants. Like, what's the a drone. For like $15? No. A drone is an actual, like, delightful, good, expensive gift. I got Jared earmuffs. The drone I gave Jared last year, I got in a white elephant gift exchange. And I was... The year before, I went to the same party, and there was a drone that someone else got. And I was like, this year, I was invited to the same party again. <laughs> I was like, this year, that fucking drone is mine. And I like read up on how to fucking strategically do this, and I got <laughs> yeah. that fucking drone. Did you? Oh, that makes so much I sense. did. Jared you has actually read up? Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to – can I just stop this Jared has the drone, and then I got the drone. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? And nope. then I gave it, gave it away. Anyway, nope. it was just a challenge. Lex, you actually read up on how to work – the white, the white elephant, elephant slash. Yeah, there's a strategy, and you have to kind of weigh what order you're in with mm. the number you picked versus it depends on the rule. So, in this particular exchange, a gift could only be exchanged three times before, mm-hmm. like, right. you could steal it three times. And the third time, it stayed with the person. Right. Because mm. so I just kind of like did the math. I like counted the cards of this white elephant exchange and I got that <laughs> shit. And I was like, yeah, I got a drone. And then it like took up space in my apartment. I'm like, you know who would like this? Jared. You know what? A drone is very good in theory, but terrible in practice. For, yeah. for somebody Listen, that is Jared's, not... Jared's video of him feeding himself a Dorito with the drone went viral. So it thanks, paid for itself. That was thanks to me because I have a connection at Barstool Sports. I really... And that was also... On, <laughs> it was on his birthday. And to you because he wouldn't have had a drone otherwise. We made him famous. Doritos. That was also on his birthday this year. Mm. And it was a week after everything hit the fan in March after the pandemic. And it was the best birthday gift I could have ever given because Honestly, I was, I was literally like in shock that I couldn't figure out any gifts. So I was like, here you go. The gift of fame. He looked so <laughs> cute too. It was like the cool, it was such a cool move. 
Yeah, if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, there was this video of this redhead guy feeding himself a Dorito with a drone that went viral on Barstool Sports, and that is my boyfriend, Jared. Thanks to Alexis and me for the gift. Whoop. Billy, what is your perfect, or what do you think a perfect, wait, sorry, I have a question about this party. Was this like a rich party? Were these people rich? And that was why the gift, the drone was in part of the gifts? Well, the drone, no, it was brought by somebody two years in a row. So some people, you know, just to get their kicks, get expensive ones. And like there was a crock pot. I brought like a $15 one from Urban Outfitters, like a weird little thing that projects your phone onto the wall. Like the the gifts range, a candle. And that's why everyone wants a drone because there was like three, there were a few Amazon Alexas in there. Mm -hmm. There were a few expensive ones, but the rest were normal, like, you know, $15, Like you remember in the office when Michael Scott buys the iPod, it was like an iPod Mm -hmm. shuffler or something like that. And it was $400 and everybody else had like $20 and then everybody was fighting over the iPod shelf. It's like that. And it's Except- all, do wait, do you know who brings what gift in it? I can't remember. Are there no, a lot of people who own, but a lot of people own it in the moment. They're yeah. like, you know, oh, that was that. mine. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you no, want the glory of having. I never found out who brought the drone. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I. But yeah, I, you know, I, I will say <laughs> my son impressed me more than anything because he was like, I got to go to a white elephant party. He went out and he actually literally got a white elephant teapot and mm. he wrapped it. And then he he does this thing where he wraps it in a small box and then he wraps the other thing in a small box and a small box. So there was like 15 boxes because he's such a pain in the ass. And then people had to open up all the boxes and then they ended up with the white elephant. Oh, so he took it very Extra literally. That's how he rolls. It was like a nesting doll, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> a nesting box into an elephant. Um, the one white elephant gift that I brought once that I ended up buying for myself afterwards because I loved it so much was a pair of blobfish slippers blobfish mm-hmm. you know blobfish like the ugly ones the cute ones yeah i think those be cute not ugly the blobfish are like one of my favorite animals um and they have blob blobfish slippers that i brought and they were a hit at my white elephant gift party and then i bought myself a pair and they're only like 20 bucks so what party were you invited to that i wasn't invited to this was for my work back in the day yeah. got it it was fair it was not fun but it really inspired me to buy myself a pair of blobfish slippers. I want that for you. You deserve that. You work really hard. Thank you. Um, okay. The second question related to gifts that I needed to get in, and I don't think we talked about this in the last episode, but what is the worst gift that you've ever received? Oh, man. <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if I've talked about this before on this podcast, but um, when I was dating my ex-boyfriend for Christmas, he got me a cookbook because a woman is supposed to be in the kitchen and then also a golf club because he loves golf. <laughs> so thoughtful Wait, of him. What what kind of go- what Just one golf club, though? Yeah. Just a single one. I think just to, you know... Oh, just as a let symbol. me know. Not not even not even a set of clubs. It'd be one thing no. if it was a set of clubs. He just gives you a golf club. That's a total F you right there. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was yeah. a single golf club. Like, you know, we're gonna do the things that I love to do. So that was the worst gift uh gifts that I've ever gotten. I'm not gonna say who gave me this gift, but I was given some Arbon things. <laughs> What's Arb what is that? An MLM. 
Arbonne's oh, in Harlem, oh, okay. and right. I was given many Arbonne things. Was it by somebody that worked at Arbonne? It was by the mother of somebody I was romantically involved in with. Oh. And <laughs> it, that's already going to give it away. If you're listening, I'm sorry. Your mom is so nice. I love your mom. It's not a dick. It's just <laughs> not a good gift. <laughs> no. It's, but your it's, mom was so sweet. Like, I feel bad. I'm not trying to talk shit. I just don't want like MLMs. Yeah. It's not. Sorry. MLMs are probably not the best gift um, to give in the world. Bi- Billy, do you? I don't even know who you're talking about. I'll have to ask you after. But they would know if they listened. Ah, uh, yes. And they'd be like, bitch is talking about my mom. I'm not. I'm just talking about MLMs. <laughs> it's not personal. I no. swear, even though it's your job. Billy, what's the worst gift you've ever gotten? The best gift was I got a free no, we subscri- didn't ask for a best. free subscription to Amway. No, we asked for <laughs> worst. worst. <laughs> no. I don't I don't get you know what? Worst gifts is that's not a thing, you know? Yes, it, it is. is no, no. I'm every gift is a is oh, a God, Billy. Sorry. No, every a, gi- a cookbook for some girl who doesn't fucking cook and doesn't want to cook is not a good gift. No, I can't I can't I, honestly I can't think of a bad gift. I'm sorry. Okay. That's not the spirit. That's not the spirit of Christmas for me. I can think of the best oh, gift. Oh God! I don't think I. Do we want to know Billy's best gift? No. Hmm. Give us a thirty-second explanation of your best gift. When I was ten years old, I really wanted a VCR so I can tape stuff off of the television, especially Saturday Night Live. And my dad got me a Fisher forehead VCR, and I remember that as my best gift. Oh, that's a good gift. Yeah, that was sweet. And succinct. It's very mm-hmm. nice. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm not going to dive into our other full uh, idea for killing time, but I have a couple questions. And two people had asked questions about true crime in Disney movies, and they wanted to know Billy's thoughts on it. So are you mm-hmm. ready, Billy? Shoot. Okay. Uh, one of our firsties asked, does Billy's obsession with Disney come from the fact that most Disney movies have some sort of true crime component to it? And explain, because I don't understand that. You know what? There's usually some sort of, if you think about Bambi, there's a crime in the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about- What's the crime? It's crime- not a crime to kill deer. I oh wish it was. Oh my God. Yes, it was. Yes, it is. <laughs> no. In the Disney universe- It's not legal. It's not illegal. Okay. <laughs> So it's it's shameful. It's a, it's a crime to his family because it's murder or her. Bam, Bambi Listen, or, yeah, yeah. Bambi there's a the there, there, there's a there's a lot of death. Not necessarily. It's more goth than it is crime, but I there's this so, definitely a lot of death. Arc, it's just like their story arcs all start sort of the same way with yeah. a tragedy that like an, an adversity, but it's not a crime. Even even you know Finding Nemo, it's just like you know the mom dies, and that's pretty you know, and then in. In Toy Story, we have no idea what happened to the dad. I can only think that he got chopped up into a bunch of pieces and fed to the fish. Why do you oh, think the dad. fish are finding Nemo? What dad? <laughs> Andy's the little dad. boys. Uh, yeah, um, no, no. What? Because that was another one of the questions too about there's always death or like a missing parent or a murdered parent. And what do you think that is? Why? I think it needs to raise people need to be invested. The stakes need to be high enough for you to like empathize or have something resonate with the character. I think. Yeah, that's it. And I once went to, uh, it was during Dapper Day. So we were all dressed up and I went to Disney 
and we took uh, edibles and we were driving, riding on the rides. And then by my fourth ride, I was just like, this entire park is about death because I'd gone to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is about death. Uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh would seem to, it was about death. Haunted Mansion, Pirates. It's entirely about death. That's all that that park is about. That's so depressing when you really think about it. Yeah, well, you know what? Life is about death when it comes down to it. Because death lasts a little bit more than life, doesn't it? I think a lot more. <laughs> a lot. Thank you for that yeah. nugget of positivity. In, that was, in our yeah. World. Do you think we killed enough time? Speaking of death. Yeah, actually. Yes. Okay. Question? Had enough. Billy has had enough. I'm Billy sorry. I'm <laughs> just fine. Yeah. Of death. 1344. I, ha- I had other questions, but okay, bye. Yeah, that's right. Beep. Beep. <laughs> Fucking beep. Oh, my God.